Hey everyone, and welcome to the 53rd episode of the Liam McCollum Show. All right, so I just got back from vacation, and while I was on the road, I went on The Naturalist Capitalist, which is Reed Coverdale's show. It's my first long-form appearance on someone's podcast, so I'm really grateful for Reed allowing me to come on and talk about how I got into libertarianism, how I got into the movement, and why I started my podcast. We also get into like history, World War One, World War Two, and a little bit about conservation. It's a pretty fun interview. I'm just going to repurpose this interview that I did on his podcast as my own, so you guys can listen to it. I'll link to his YouTube channel and his Twitter and everything, so you can follow it. But I actually did an interview with Reed a couple weeks ago. If you're you're not aware of who he is, talking about how he got into the movement. Um, so I'll link to that as well. Reed's a really great guy. He reached out to me a few weeks ago after listening to an interview I did with Scott Horton just in preparation for his own. And we've been in contact ever since. I'm pretty grateful for him having me on and this was super fun. So I hope you enjoy it. Here it is. From the heart of trucker America, my boy, Reed Coverdale, host of The Naturalist Capitalist. As the left becomes less religious, they become more statist. And as the right becomes more religious, they still become more statist. Whenever you add government, you by default remove community. But it actually starts with Bush, right? Like in sure. 2006. That'd be the most satisfying, like, chair shot. And I have no intention of keeping any promise that I make. The radical messaging is almost more pragmatic sometimes. It's bad that the state is as big as it is. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for watching The Naturalist Capitalist for the second time today. I'm doing another stream. Busy day, but it's all good. Um, I have Liam McCollum on the other end, who uh, I have become very interested in over the last few months. Uh, he's got a new show that he's been uh, getting going. He's had a lot of guests. He's been hitting the grindstone. So uh, really excited to have him on. How are you doing, Liam? Good. Thanks for having me on. I'm actually on the road right now. So I'm kind of getting a little bit of the experience that you have when you're doing it out of the, out of your sleeper on the truck. So thanks for having me on though. This is, this is awesome. It's been fun to see you rise in this movement. So. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. Just being on the road. Uh, you're, you're on a pretty long road trip right now and it's the first time really going across the country. What, what do you think of it? What, what, what do you think of the vast expanse of uh, soybeans and corn and grass that we have here? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just been cool to get out. We stopped in Nashville. That was our end goal. Um, we we went to Branson, Missouri, um, then Memphis. My grandpa's a huge Elvis fan. I think he was a little disappointed. But uh, we're, we're heading back from Nashville. Nashville was crazy. It's just awesome to get out after last year. Everything locked down, being a student, having to do everything virtually. Um, it, it was just cool to see people, like every single restaurant, uh, on Broadway it was filled with people. There were bands playing every single restaurant. It was, it was just great to see. Yeah. I don't know how many people watching have been to Nashville, but, uh, it's, uh, when I was there, at least everybody had cowboy boots and there was live country music in like every single bar. I don't know if it was like that for you. <laughs> there was actually some rock going on, which I, I enjoyed. Um, there was one band. It, it was kind of like they, the people in the bar requested songs for the band and the, the band ended up playing Eminem. And I was actually really impressed with how they did, but yeah, no, um, I think a lot of people are kind of going across the country right now. A lot of students, um, there were some young people there. So not all of them were wearing cowboy boots and stuff like that. It was, it was really fun to see. Yeah. I think not enough people get out and see the country. I think it does a lot of good for your soul. It does a lot of good for your perspective on life. Um, because it, it sounds, we were talking before the video, it sounds, uh, similarly to me, you grew up in, um, you know, you grew up in one state, didn't get out a ton. Um, and I was the same way. Like I, I, I grew up in New Hampshire and I made it to Arizona a few times, uh, flew out there cause I had family there, but I was in new England in the Northeast and that was it. And I didn't see any of the country until I was 20 years old. And then I just took two years off. And I went to all 50 states, uh, most of the national parks, most of the big cities, um, worked in Arizona, worked in uh, Colorado, 
uh, met people of all sorts of different walks of life, people who were from different countries, people who had never seen the ocean, which was really foreign to me, you know, like meeting people in Colorado who'd never seen the Atlantic or Pacific. And that was something I just never really considered that, you know, oh yeah, some people <laughs> grow up without seeing mountains or without seeing deserts or, you know, I don't know. Cause like I, I'd seen it all. Um, but it was, uh, it was a very eye-opening experience. Um, so I, I don't know. I, do you do you think people need to get out more and uh, see the country that we live in, see the people and how different they are and and how similar they all are too? That's what's funny is how different we can all be but similar at the same time. Yeah, definitely. So I'm I'm growing up. Um, I grew up in Montana around mountains and stuff like that. But I was also kind of accustomed to eastern Montana, which is pretty flat. Mm -hmm. uh, but being around mountains is I'm I'm super grateful for it. Like my current home in my university town is in it's it's in missoula um and we're just surrounded it's like a bowl of mountains and sometimes i wake up and i'm just looking i'm driving by and then i'm like there are literally mountains right in my backyard and yeah i, I think i take that for granted and i wonder how you know people from california or like if they're not around mountains if they live in a city what it would be like for them because sometimes you really just do stare at it and, and you're like like that's just amazing um, but I, I've been to the East Coast. I've been to D.C. Um, mm -hmm. I've I mean, just this road trip, like I've I've gone all across the south now. Um, and really, I mean, when I when I got to Memphis and Nashville, it was kind of like eye opening. Um, I do think that that is very important, and especially from a libertarian standpoint, you know, uh, especially if you commit to like the localism, the, the subsidiarity and stuff like that. It's it's pretty important to see. Um, I guess the different cultures and the different values that you might actually be able to visualize within how people live their lives too. Um, I mean, Branson, Missouri was literally just like an amusement park. And it was like, it was just weird to think about these kids who literally stay up every weekend working at an amusement, like a huge amusement park um, and how completely different that would be from just me growing up in, in a small town in Montana. So yeah, I think there's definitely some, um, it, it would be important to do that especially if you're a libertarian, I think. Yeah. Uh, did you grow up hiking a lot and backpacking, like going out in the mountains or you just look at them? Yeah. Well, surprisingly, I actually haven't been camping. I tell a lot of people that in Montana and they're like, how, like there's every, every single person I tell that is like, we need to take you camping right now. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I haven't been camping, but I, I went out hunting a lot as a kid, at least with my mm -hmm. dad um, until I got my hunter's license pretty early. Um, so I've been out hunting a lot. I've only killed like two or three animals, but, um, I was, I was out hunting with my dad and my family. Uh, in high school, I started to go out on more hikes with friends. Um, but yeah, it just being around, like we have a ski mountain just outside of my hometown. So pretty outdoorsy and you're the naturalist capitalist. So, so you get, outdoors quite a bit too. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely something that I think is important. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, what a lot of the inner city liberals don't realize too, is that, um, you know, the, the, the caretakers of the land and of the wildlife are the, the rednecks, you know, that they tend to not like very much that they tend to want to regulate the shit out of and take their guns away and take their diesel tractors away or whatever. Um, you know, most of the pollution in the world is done by like 10 giant corporations and by the military and, you know, by, by things that your Montana farmer is not, <laughs> you know, is not contributing to, um, yeah. or the, the hunters, you know, when you really know people who hunt and work the land and live in these communities, you realize they are the ones who are preserving them and care about them it's really actually not the people living in high rises in Manhattan, you know, they, they might conceptualize it, but there's no actual connection that they have to it. And they definitely don't understand, um, you know, how things work or how we can properly take care of the land or manage the wildlife because they've just read it out of a book. Um, and I don't know, I've always thought that was funny because I, you know, I've been a blue collar guy my whole life, lived in the country most of my life until very recently. Now I'm living in Salt Lake city, but um, it was always funny just uh, listening to a lot of these inner city liberal types try to talk about 
anything like power delivery or logging or stuff that they'd never laid their hands on, but you know, they, they, they thought they knew how it all worked. <laughs> yeah. Or, or how to like prevent wildfires and stuff like mm-hmm. that. I think here in Montana, an interesting story is just like how the government essentially wiped out the bison population. And it was actually private owners who brought them back. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know the exact story, but um, the government essentially tried to bring bison back and it wasn't until they opened it up to private ownership that they started to breed bison and they, the population just exploded. So, yeah, I think that's a, that's another example of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, when did you get interested in libertarianism? Um, you're, I think you're what, 21 about. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, how, how, how young were you when those ideas really started catching on with you? Yeah. So it's actually pretty interesting. Um, my story was kind of a result of public education, and I don't think a lot of libertarians would say that, or it, they definitely wouldn't want to say that, but um, I, I'm pretty happy with it because my senior year of high school, I met uh, my my teacher. So it was a high school senior civics class. Um, and my teacher was a self-professed libertarian and anarchist. Um, and I still consider him a mentor today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but essentially in 2016, I was a pretty big Trump supporter. I wore a MAGA hat. Um, I was caught up in that wave of just like, I mean, I think a lot of people around election time, um, that's when people start to be interested in politics who are pretty young. Um, they kind of get in that tribal mentality. And and that's kind of what happened with me. Um, so around senior year, I was still pretty big into Trump. Like I supported the dropping of the Moab in Afghanistan. I was kind of just like, you know, the, um, the military was just, I don't know. I really don't know what it was, but um, eventually the scales dropped from my eyes. And part of that was because um, my, my senior year of civics, there was essentially like this. Uh, it was a program put forth by the civic. So the center for civic education, I think is what it was called. And my, my teacher enrolled the class in this and he does it every year. And essentially you get handed this textbook with like nine different units and each unit is focused on different topics. And I was assigned unit one, which was focused on philosophy and the history of the United States. Um, So I started to be engaged with questions like whether or not minority rule was better than majority rule and all of this different, these different things like classical Republicanism or classical liberalism, which one was better. Um, And I started to question whether or not like why it was the case that simply 51% of people voting for something, you know, binds 49% or whatever, like yeah. just those, those things didn't really make a lot of sense. Um, and the questions of like liberalism and the John Locke tradition and Plato and, and Aristotle and which forms of government were better. Um, and then my, my teacher gave me uh Tom Woods. Um, he, he told me to listen to a Tom Woods podcast. And part of this was because I, I would constantly go to him asking questions. And every single day it was like a new question and, and he was kind of moved by it. Um, and I, I found he, he would say things like he would critique Obamacare. And I'm like, wow, that's awesome. Because at the time I'm like caught up in this, I hadn't found logic yet. I hadn't taken a right. logic class. And my logic at the time was like a system of partisanship. So mm-hmm. how could it how could it possibly be that this guy who's critiquing Obamacare in public education turns around and says something bad about Trump? And that just like amazed me. I'm like, how? Like that doesn't even make any sense in, in this mm-hmm. paradigm that I'm working within. Um, so I just started to ask more questions and um, I found out that he was a libertarian and he gave me Tom Woods. I think I, I found Eric July shortly after that. And he helped out quite a bit. Um, but I, I became a libertarian, um, made the slight move to anarchism and then what I now call voluntarism, um, or I'd like to be identified as that probably the most. Um, but yeah, it was kind of just this, this movement. Uh, it wasn't really like I found any person, like I wasn't in the Ron Paul movement or anything like that. I, I was too young for that, but, uh, it was really just question and answer. Um, and I was put in this environment where I had the freedom to kind of research these things. And there's, I'm, I'm pretty happy to say that there's a video of me 
somewhere out there uh in the so it's called the we the people competition is what our our teacher enrolled us in enrolled us in and his name's mr deming i think he he kind of deserves to be named um but i we won the state competition here in montana and then we went to nationals and there's a video out there of me citing Lysander Spooner within like the first few words of, of our prepared response. And apparently that video is being used to kind of like coach people all across the country on how you, you do a good presentation in this competition. Um, so it's pretty cool to see wow. that. Uh, <laughs> <That's cool. laughs> yeah. So around like, I, I'm, I think I, so I'm 18 or 17 at this time and I'm reading Lysander Spooner and it's all thanks to this guy, uh, Mr. Deming. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of the story. And then um, I started to discover more people like Scott Horton, uh, eventually realized that potentially we don't, we don't need government. Um, we don't need government to engage in foreign affairs and all this different stuff. It, it was just issue by issue, I think, um, mm -hmm. which I think happens for a lot of people. And you might actually be able to somewhere out there on the internet, see my development on Quora. Uh, I used to go on there and just kind of engage with certain questions um just to see what i thought about them but yeah that's kind of my story yeah that's interesting i um <clears throat> see I, I didn't ever have a moment where i was like "Ooh, libertarianism i want to find out what that is um i don't even remember when i first heard the word or when it really clicked i think uh the first time i heard the word and remember it was um 2016 with gary johnson's campaign because I didn't, I, I was way into Rand Paul, but I wasn't thinking he was a libertarian. I don't remember ever thinking that. I just liked what he was talking about. Um, but it was funny. I didn't, I didn't ever have a desire to become a libertarian or to find out about libertarianism. It was that these ideas just kind of slapped me across the face and they made sense. Yeah. And I, didn't, I didn't even like it all the time. And it's been, a slow process. Like most of the big picture issues I came around on pretty quickly, but the minutia of like the smaller things, you know, those have evolved until pretty much like, I mean, they're still evolving now, but uh, <laughs> I, I finally kind of admitted that I am an anarchist uh, back in like February of this year or January. I don't know. Sometime around there, I finally logically arrived at the position that government is immoral. Like just the idea of it. it I mean, it, it can't, you know, it can't be used to make something better. Uh, it took me like seven years to get there. Um, but what I, what I'm really trying to say is I never wanted to get there. Like I, I never was a neocon thinking, Oh, wouldn't it be great to be an anarchist or wouldn't it be great to be a libertarian? The ideas just make sense and you can't really argue against them. And you, you do, or I did, like I argued against them for a while and I, resisted, you know, especially when it was getting to anarchy, because libertarianism is already crazy enough. But if you're going to call yourself an anarchist, like, whoa, that's that's ridiculous. You know, you can't go that far. So it was nothing but struggling to hold myself back. And finally, OK, I, I just accept it like it <laughs> it makes sense. I was wondering, did you have experiences like that where there's certain where there's certain issues that um, you were like, whoa, that's crazy. But it makes sense and I can't deny that it makes sense. And then you just had to eventually accept it. Yeah. I think, I think that actually perfectly illustrates exactly how it was because it was, I mean, the biggest thing for me was probably militarism. Um, mm -hmm. I was so, I mean, I was really big into world war two. I, hey, I, wasn't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wasn't great at the history of it. Like I couldn't give you details and stuff like that, but just the whole idea of it and like the, the kind of mythical, storytelling of it all you know mm -hmm. um and world war one too um but i i think that eventually i just realized i think the biggest thing was just seeing um the this teacher mr deming he he uh was so consistent on these issues but then it was the question of like i keep saying that i'm in favor of limited government like i i, I keep saying that but then look at all of these other issues that i'm advocating for and i i think it, that it really was that i was caught up in this false kind of logic of, you know, like whatever the party says, whatever the guy at the top says. And I think that a lot of conservatives really get caught up in that where, I mean, I, I used to listen to Ben Shapiro a lot and um, I thought that he was pretty rational. And mm -hmm. uh, ever since Trump 
kind of took over the entire Republican Party. Like you've you've really seen how those conservatives have like defended anything that that comes out of the Republican Party. Um, so I think it, it was kind of stuff like that where I, I was just hit across the face, like you said, um, with with these things that I couldn't really deny. Like if I, if I really stuck to these founding principles, because um, I think at least the the story that's told around the Declaration of Independence and stuff like that, because um, I, I talk with uh, the organizer of the Mises Caucus here in Montana, or the co-organizer, I'm I'm organizing it with him about this all the time. And he says that the Declara Declaration of Independence is actually more prominent than the Constitution, um, simply because the principles kind of orient how we should look at these things. Um, and I think that when you take those principles into account, like all of these principles that I that I read in this, um, the first unit of that textbook, like like classical liberalism, like classical republicanism, and then this the idea of representation. And I think another big thing was like, I remember looking at a ballot when I could first vote and we were voting for raising property taxes on people within. So I lived outside of the city, um, but it was to vote to raise property taxes on people within the city um, to fund public education. Mm -hmm. And I just, I looked at that ballot and I was like, so as a student who doesn't own property, I can vote to raise people's property to benefit me. That just seems so distorted. And I remember that moment, I, like I went to school and I was pretty angry about it because I, it, it just didn't make any sense. It was like this weird, you know, we say taxation without representation, but it was like, I don't even really know how to conceive of it. It was like these people who are being taxed are being like the, the appropriation of their tax money is like diluted or the representation of them is diluted by more people who can vote to appropriate their taxes a different direction. And I remember just stuff like that. It just, it really was like the scales fell from my eyes, I guess, um, over time. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to talk about World War II a little bit, just because that, that's such an overlap in interest too. I, I'm, I'm a World War II nut and I haven't mm -hmm. been like paying attention to it as much lately because I've had uh, a new area of interest that's become much more important. But when I was in high school and even after high school, like World War II was everything. Uh, I did reenactments. I was on the History Channel for the seventy was the seventieth anniversary of D Day. I uh, I was in the History Channel special doing a D Day thing in Maine. Damn. We were on a beach that looked sort of like Omaha Beach, and we did this reenactment. Um, I own a Grand. You know, I own a bunch of World War II uh, rifles and paraphernalia from both sides. Um, so I, I find all that very interesting. Um, and it was always the war that you could justify, right? Because the Nazis were, you know, committing genocide and the Japanese were trying to take over the world on the other side. Um, but then when you start studying the history, even without a libertarian mindset, you start getting confused. You realize like, wait, we didn't, we didn't even declare war on Germany until after Japan bombed us on Pearl Harbor. Like we didn't get into the war at all over the Holocaust. We didn't even know it was going on, you know, until the end of the war. Um, and then you find out things about like uh, firebombing Dresden. You know, you're like, wait a second. Okay, we're not just bombing railroad depots and bomb making plants. Like that's a city full of civilians. And then, um, especially over in Japan, you know, you want to talk about killing civilians. Um, it, it's so funny because we all talk about the atomic bombs. Uh, that didn't kill nearly as many people as firebombing Tokyo for six months. Um, you know, the bombers who flew over Tokyo, they could smell burning flesh in the airplane that, that high above the city. Um, and, you know, they attacked Pearl Harbor. They killed like 98% military personnel. We killed like 98% civilians in Tokyo yeah. and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, and then you start learning about World War One and how that ended and how World War Two is really just an extension of World War One because of how stupidly World War One was ended and how we annexed. We, I mean, we broke land up and gave it to different people and had all these sanctions and everything. And I don't know, you just like start realizing it's all a big lie as far as how justified it was, you know, because that, that's the good war. That's the one that we had to enter. That's the one that there was no way around where it was really good versus evil. 
Mm-hmm. You see how much we broke the Geneva Convention. Even even if you are going to believe in like the rules of war within that construct, we were still horrible. I mean, yeah. we killed millions of civilians, and I mean, so I don't know. I, did you ever? Um, did you come to that realization recently, or what was that like for you? I think it was around the same time, probably, because I mean, it like it really was like I was just taking steps up a ladder to libertarianism and um, the, my teacher at the time and my uh, close friend, um, we, we just kind of kept asking each other questions and trying to work through all of these problems. And uh, the question of just war came up in World War II. And I remember just asking, um, cause I was taking, so I was taking a post-war era class and I forget what the first class was called of, of that. Um, about World War II and World War One, and the question of you know whether or not World War II was justified and stuff like that came up, and and, and I asked my uh, teacher at the time, and he just looks at me and goes, "Well, why did World War II happen?" <laughs> and, then, and then I just sat there for a little bit, and my eyes just widened, and I'm like, "Okay, well, I mean, we had the Treaty of Versailles, we had the Treaty of Sevres, right?" Um, the problems that we're having in the Middle East are kind of a result of the Treaty of Sevres right now. Um, and the Treaty of Versailles and just the destruction that that we imposed on Germany at the time basically caused Germany to hyperinflate their currency and go bankrupt to pay us back. And, you know, there's another lesson about inflation that eventually when reading um, and the Fed, Ron Paul's and the Fed that I had to come to. Um, but yeah, it, it was just kind of that conclusion of like, we intervened within the, these foreign countries, um, in a war that likely wasn't justified world war one. Um, I think that there's a really good case that it wasn't justified. I don't know enough about the conflict, but, um, Woodrow Wilson, just knowing who he was, I think that even conservatives could try to look into him being like an, an imperialist president who wanted to redefine the powers of the presidency. And, and what they could do, they could they could probably come to that conclusion pretty quickly if they if they were willing to, um, like I did. Uh, but I, th- I think it was that him simply just saying, "Well, why did we get into World War II?" and that that helped a lot. Um, but yeah, it really was just this, like like I said, climbing up a ladder with all of these things. Yeah, I mean, that was just such a big building block of my life because I mean, it was what I obsessed over in high school and then realizing like, what, it's all bullshit. You know, like it wasn't, it wasn't this like great thing that we had to do. And we weren't just handing chocolate bars out to everyone. We were actually fucking firebombing them for months. You know, I mean, it's, it's not, um, it's not the image you have in your mind. And then if you go to uh, some world war two museums, the amount that we dehumanized the Japanese, you know, like it's very similar. If you walk through an exhibit about, our, um, you know, our imaging of the Japanese and the Germans imaging of the Jews. It's very similar, like the amount that we're trying to portray them as subhuman. And then, you know, also how we still treated black people here, you know, um, they weren't allowed to eat in the same areas of the restaurants as we were They had to use different entrances They weren't allowed to use the same water fountains or buses. I mean, so this idea that we were some extremely, morally superior country compared to these other places. It's just really not that true. But um, I think reading about World War II and how it happened is one of the greatest arguments for libertarianism ever. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a lesson we still haven't learned. And I was trying to explain that to a lot of my Republican friends a couple of years ago uh, with Trump just increasing his sanctions on Iran all the time. And this idea that if we just sanction them enough, then they'll do what we want them to do. And then they'll like us or whatever. It's like, that's not how it ever works. Like you don't sanction someone into subjugation. They just hate you more and more and more. Um, you know, that's how world war two started in Europe, basically. I mean, what we did to the Germans is the same thing. Um, if you want people to make rational decisions, you don't bomb them or kill their children or starve them or sanction them. That radicalizes them to do insane things. And I don't that, you know, that doesn't excuse what they do. I'm not trying to excuse terrorism or Nazism or anything, but I'm just saying you have to be honest about the causation. Like 
why do people turn to madmen? Why do they turn to crazy ideologies? I mean, if you want to make an atheist pray to the sky, then drop a bomb on his house, you know, like you'll he'll <laughs> make him search for Allah and, you know, do crazy things. Like people just, I don't know. They don't get that still. Yeah. So I actually took a, a really cool class this last semester from a great professor uh, named Richard Drake. Mm-hmm. And he's, um, he's kind of of the old right. He writes about the old right quite a bit, um, which is, I'm so grateful that I found it. it was kind of by accident that I stumbled into his class, but his whole like premise of the class was that we need to look at why people become terrorists. And the first day in class, he said, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about defining terrorists today and labeling certain people in our country pointing towards the insurrectionist, but he wasn't being as direct or what people would call the insurrectionist. And he says, we have to be really careful about this because um, it could be pointed at anyone. Right. Mm-hmm. But then the whole, reason that he had the class was to kind of look at the reasons why people become terrorists too, um, why they, why they would take, uh, political violence into their own hands. And, you know, I'm, if I were to call myself an anarchist, I would be more of like a Leo Tolstoy kind of peaceful anarchist, Christian anarchist, but he, um, that, that was kind of the analysis. And, uh, I think that it, it was really beneficial to have that class and, and look at, um, why, for instance, 9-11 happened and why Osama bin Laden attacked the towers. And it's not to justify any of their actions, right? It's just mm-hmm. to say that certain things that we do might incentivize people to do that. Um, but on the on the previous World War 2.2, I was just going to say that I've, I've always thought that it was no coincidence that like FDR, um, uh, Hitler, Stalin, and all of these people came about at the same exact time, right? I mean, there, there there's a quote from Hitler where he essentially points to I, I don't I don't remember if it was FDR or Wilson, but he's like, you can't talk you can't talk about me and what I'm doing to these people because you guys did it to the Native Americans. Yeah. He said that. And I mean, like, again, it's not to justify them, but just to say, especially to these conservatives who are so convicted to like this militarism, that it was FDR who a lot of these Democrats point to. It was Woodrow Wilson who up until like two years ago, everyone praised on the left that really tried to expand the presidency. And I would really urge like conservatives, uh, maybe even the ones who really liked Trump to uh, read about like the America first movement um, before World War II. They they didn't they weren't anti-war once Japan bombed us, but they were really urging uh, caution and they were kind of like talking about constitutional uh, militarism, you know, you have to pass, uh, based off of, um, Congress has to pass it. Right. And I think I actually have this book. It's reclaiming the American, right. Mm-hmm. People should really read it. It's Justin Romando. And he, he's the, um, editor of, he was the editor of antiwar.com. And he's talking about all these people like Garrett Garrett. Um, I think it was also Taft at the time. Um, all of these different people who were kind of saying what Trump said, America first, right that took on this anti-war, but laissez-faire approach to conservatism, what conservatism used to be. Um, But then he also dives into uh, how the conservative movement that we have today that was kind of defined by Bush became what it is. And part of it was because these these leftists um, from the Soviet Union actually joined the Republican Party because these these parties are essentially just coalitions, right? Like, Like they're so reactionary. Um, I know know it was Murray Rothbard, I think. I think this is a Scott Horton point, too, that that Murray Rothbard used to say, um, you know, I used to be called a leftist. I used to be called uh, a conservative. Um, I haven't changed, but the parties have. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's kind of been what it is. So uh, I think it was like Max Shackman, James Burnham. They all entered the party as Trotskyites who who were kind of disaffected communists who came over to the party and advocated for interventionism against the Soviet Union, right? To, to take down the Soviet Union because they, they hated Stalin. Um, so that's what that book is about. And that's been really influential. Um, but it's just, yeah, I think that that if people really want to like get to the roots of, of like the anti-interventionist right or libertarianism, I think that that's a good place to start is to look into World War II and World War One.
it's a challenging place at least. Yeah, for sure. So, um, how long have you had your show about a year? Yeah. So I, I think I started it. So it would have been January of last year. Mm -hmm. Um, and my, my first guest was Scott Horton actually. And that's kind of why I, I got motivated to, to, um, start it because I, I sat on it for so long. I bought like a website and I just didn't know what to name it. <laughs> I, I was like, what, like I needed to come up with something like naturalist capitalist. But mm-hmm. then I reached out to Scott saying, Hey, I'm going to start a podcast soon. Would you be a guest? And he's like, he said, um, yeah, I'll be on next week. Uh, can you, can you do it next week? And it was, it was then that I'm like, Oh man, I have to create a name. And I, I just created the Liam McCullum show. Cause right. I, I'm not very creative. <laughs> But I think it's it's been helpful to like uh, get connections like you. Um, just uh, people, if they see the podcast, like I, I've kind of been using it as an opportunity to meet contacts and network, and it's been really beneficial here in Montana, at least since I'm um, uh, trying to organize the Mises Caucus and get the Libertarian Party kind of built here. Um, so yeah, I, I started it off just kind of trying to meet these people and try to meet mentors because it's kind of hard in, in public education. Um, I, yeah. I'm in the university uh, trying to go to law school. So that was kind of the goal with it. Just try to learn and, and connect with people. And it's been really beneficial. So <clears throat> how did you connect with Scott Horton and all these people? Cause I, uh, let's see, I, I got to a lot of people through Twitter but then I became friends with Dave Smith. And then after that happened, it was just like a floodgate opening. It was super easy to connect with people because they knew me from being on Dave Smith's show. And then he helped me get in contact with like Tom Woods. Um, and then Ryan Dawson, I was lucky enough to be friends with uh, Eric Jackman, was friends with him already. So I, I got in contact with him that way before I knew Dave actually. Uh, so I had lucky connections and then Twitter. But I was wondering, how did you end up meeting these people? Cause you've had lots of different people on and h- how do you get in contact with them usually? Yeah. So it was, I think it was just really lucky. I, um, I was just, I pitched it to Scott. I just formatted an email and that's all it was. I was like, Hey, I'm a student, but I don't have many people here who agree with me. I'm trying to find contacts so that I can learn some stuff. And I think maybe like partially t- uh, you know, kind of lied a little bit about, my intention to just uh, get those people that I looked up to um, I, cause I just wanted to talk to them. And uh, it was just that, that quick response, but I, I was pretty uh, strategic at the beginning and trying to find like a wide um, list of guests so that if, if I reached out to a, a person who wasn't a libertarian or something like that, I would send them a certain episode and be like, Hey, look at this. I had a Pulitzer prize winner who I think like my third guest was uh a guy from the Washington Post or the New York Times who reported on Snowden. He like was in contact with Snowden or something like that. And I was, I was able to use that towards like leftists who might not respect um, more of like a libertarian or an anarchist or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that was my goal at the beginning. And then I would just like email all these people. But then after a while, Scott Horton did follow me on Twitter. Um, and then that kind of opened the door to, uh, have him like retweet some stuff. And uh, I know you found my podcast with Scott Horton and that's how you, you came to know me. So it was kind of just really lucky for me. I think Um, I'm still not that, that big of a podcast, but I've still been able to get in contact with people like you over Twitter. And I mean, my, my following on Twitter has I think doubled just within two months because Dave Mm -hmm. Smith retweeted me a couple of times. But I, I really, uh, attribute it to you and and stuff like that because I'm kind of riding on the coattails of of you know Dave Smith picking you up and then mm-hmm. uh, yeah you're you've been doing that to me so I've been pretty grateful yeah well I mean there's some people I wish I hadn't done it for that everyone has uh, <laughs> seen recently but uh, yeah no I'm I'm all about that you know if uh, because uh, him doing it for me. Uh, has been huge. So I, I realize the the same for anybody else. Uh, but I, I really like the stuff you put out. It's really good. Uh, you, you just brought up the the interview with Scott. I don't think it was your first interview that you had with him. I think it was like your second or third one that you did with him. Um, but 
Scott was the first guy that I was really terrified of having on the show. And it's not because I thought he was going to be a jerk or something, but it's just that he knows so much. Um, and he's just so like passionate about it. So I really didn't want to look like an idiot in front of him. <laughs> so I, um, like the, the three days before I had him on the show, I watched uh, your episode with him. And then I listened to him on part of the problem, listened to him on Tom Woods, listened to him on his show. I just like, I, I put like 20 hours of Scott Horton into my brain before I had him on the first time. And the interview actually went really well, but um, yeah, man, that guy, I don't, <laughs> I know. Is he your like most consistent guest that you've had on or? Yeah, just because I think with foreign policy, it's always updating. Um, mm -hmm. Like I'm already thinking about having him on again, just because I, I'm really bad about reading news. And I think that at least in my editing process, like when I go back and, and listen to an interview um, or if I, if I'm just listening to it again, I think that that's when I'm learning the most. So like with Scott, he's constantly just spitting stuff out. So it's kind of been cool to create my own content, like ask the questions that I think that I need. Um, it's, it's, and it is really hard with him, right? Like, cause yeah. if, if you don't stop him, if you don't try to like, interject if you have a question or you don't really understand something he can really take it over so i use him both as like a challenge and um i i'm just i really like learning about foreign policy because i i'm really bad about reading the news but i've also met him in person he we had him up here uh a student group of mine had him up here to um speak and then he testified at the capitol uh so that was that was pretty fun to hang out with him and we're trying to get him back here in montana uh for our convention because we have a libertarian party convention in September. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I love that guy. Uh, I got him and Ryan Dawson on this month for the four horsemen. I don't know if I'll get a single word in. I'll have to like bring Eric on first and to say, okay, do like 15 minutes of Trump impersonations. And then we'll <laughs> let Scott and Ryan talk the rest of the time, but you're, you're right. Like with, with uh, Scott, you've got, if you want to say anything, you've got to know what you're going to say and you've got to, jump in with it. Um, so you really got to, it's hard to have a good Scott interview because it's really easy to have him on and just have him talk. Cause you could just be like, Hey Scott, tell me about Syria. And he could go for five hours. Yeah. Have like a two way conversation. You've really got to know what to ask. And you've also got to be kind of fluid cause you're doing it in an interview. You don't want to, you know, you want to be, uh, you, you want to be relatable to what he's actually talking about. You want you don't want to just have like five questions laid out and then he goes somewhere else and you're like, Oh, okay. My next question will, you know, you kind of want to kind of want to follow the conversation, but um, yeah, he's, he's great. Like uh, I love having him on. Um, have you evolved uh, since you started your show? Like, have you gotten a lot better at asking questions and a lot better at flowing with the conversation? Do you still write things down ahead of time or have you just become more natural or how is that? gone for you. Yeah. I think I actually tried to start out pretty natural um, mm -hmm. and that didn't work out with me. So I, I kind of evolved to taking notes on the side, but now I don't need them as much. I just put them on my laptop and, mm -hmm. and I kind of read off of that if I need to. Uh, I, I've definitely gotten more confident. Um, that's something, that's another reason why I think I started it is just because um, especially going into the pandemic, it was nice to still talk to people when I wasn't getting that engagement that I, I would have in classes. Um, so that, that was pretty ha helpful, but, uh, when I slowed down, I actually got more nervous. So I, I, I could tell that when I started to do less podcasts, it, it really took a toll on me. So I'd like to keep them, um, updated again. I, it's been three weeks since I put out my last one and that's just cause I'm on vacation, but mm -hmm. I plan to do it pretty consistently this summer and it is pretty hard to do it in the middle of the school year. At one yeah. point I was doing like twice a week with being a full-time student and working, but I just couldn't do it with the upper division classes in philosophy and all the reading I had to do. Yeah. So if you can change one thing about the way somebody thinks, what, what is your goal with your podcast? What, 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 if you had to narrow it down to one thing that you could really uh, influence people with, what would that one thing be? Yeah. Um, the, the goal with the podcast originally, uh, I don't think it was intended to reach people as much as I, I plan now. Um, originally, it really was just 
so that I could, I think that I could learn. I, I had hopes that it would reach more people, but now I think that I really want to gear it more locally um, mm -hmm. just because I am getting involved in the Libertarian Party here. I'm, I'm an organizer of the Mises Caucus in Montana. So uh, I really do think that what I should be trying to do is, is learning about local issues. So I've had some, some people on like uh, Kendall Cotton from the Frontier Institute talking about something that I think that a lot of people should be focusing on right now because we we focus way too much on national politics um which was montana got rid of occupational licensing and they reformed a lot of healthcare stuff in this last legislative session so um kind of just uh putting attention towards montana and local politics but also still being in touch with the national movement like through you guys and and dave smith and everything um, that, that's kind of been the goal is to reach people in Montana who might be sympathetic to libertarianism, um, who might know a little bit about the Frontier Institute because it has something to do with being a Republican, maybe, um, or, uh, you know, Americans for Prosperity and reaching out to people there. They, they pass a lot of cool stuff like executive, um, like uh, gubernator. It, they, they reformed a lot of stuff uh, through the governor, like the powers that they had with emergency powers. And um, we also had like a food freedom bill. Uh, so I, I just want to get people in touch with that, but then also maybe use that as like a Trojan horse to bring people like you in um, to talk about more national issues, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I, I like your show, man. I think it's great. And um I don't know how many episodes I've seen. I've seen three or four of them. And, um, you know, you, you caught my eye with that Scott Horton interview. Um, so, <laughs> you know, hopefully you'll catch other people's eyes. And I just wanted to get more eyes on you because I think you're actually doing a good job. Um, there are a lot of people who they get a lot of publicity and they, they don't really deserve it. You know, <laughs> you go watch their content and it's just not really that impressive. But I think what you're doing is really cool. Um, so I've got a link in the description to your channel uh, and to your Twitter page. Uh, but if there's anywhere else that you want people to follow you, keep up with you and uh, pay attention to what you're doing, uh, just let us know. Yeah, um, I would say that you should follow me on Instagram, even though that I don't think that it's a it's a great platform. It's just the same handle as uh, Twitter. Um, I just have more followers on there. So and I post these clips. I have like um I'll do like 10 little clips for my interviews on, on Instagram. I try to do it on YouTube too, but uh, mm -hmm. that's a good way to see clips if you don't want to watch a full interview. Okay. Uh, any uh, big guests coming up or are you not really lined up that far? I know that uh, I plan on having Joshua Smith. I'm, I'm in contact with him. I do plan on having him within uh, the next month or two. We, we've, we've talked and he's definitely going to come on, but I don't have a date set, but after after I get back, I'm I'm gonna sit down and get all these interviews planned. All right, cool. Well, everyone, you should go uh, subscribe to this guy on YouTube. Go follow him on his platforms. He's uh, got a lot of good content, and uh, it's cool seeing younger people actually care about this. You know, I'm I'm one of the younger people who's involved in this, and I'm 27, so it's cool seeing guys at your age or even younger than me getting out and doing it. That's really great. When I was your age, I, pff, I didn't care about politics. <laughs> you know, I mean, I did, but not to the level you do. You're not, I wasn't trying to make a difference or anything. So it's really cool seeing that. But uh, thanks for coming on, Liam. I'll just give you the last word and then we'll, uh, we'll end the stream. Yeah. Thank you. And um, if, if there are any people in Montana, I, I would recommend that they reach out to um, the Mises Caucus and the Libertarian Party there because we really are trying to get organized. Um, in Montana, we really are not necessarily taking over, which has been the language at the national level. We're really trying to build because after 2020, um, with what happened, especially with our our governor Bullock, um, who who was a Democrat, we really heard nothing from the Libertarian Party here, and we don't really have any county positions. My my co-organizer Adam uh, just got elected at a county position. Um, a chair position and we're really planning on uh, electing a chair and we I guess I should say I went to a convention in 2020 a Montana convention where we nominated different alternates and, and delegates and stuff and let's just say I have more members in the Mises caucus now than we're at that meeting and it really isn't I I think that 
the role. I know Liberty Unity has kind of taken a hit, um, but I think that Liberty Unity now needs to be, especially at the local level here in Montana um, and local areas. I know Wyoming has a similar issue is is finding these people who are still devoted to the principles because um, there are a lot of people who might not be focused on caucuses or something like this and just working with them. I think that that is what unity is. If anyone wants to help build a party in Montana, since there isn't a party and people have been inactive, then they should really reach out to us because um, we do have principles to preserve. We do have principles to advocate for. Um, I think there is room to not have unity with those people who are totally against those principles. Um, I think that a lot of people uh, use the face of Liberty Unity. Um, and again, I know that movement has been hit, but I think there's still some um, importance to it. Uh, they use the face of it, but really they aren't for the Mises Caucus. And the Mises Caucus has been just a tool to take these people who were pushed out of the party, um, bring them in and unite them with those who are still libertarians. So if you are from Montana, reach out. If not, follow us on Twitter. Adam does some great work. Uh, he's handling our Twitter. So um, do that. And then, yeah, listen to my podcast. Uh, I just, I know I said I'd give you the last word, but I just do want to comment on Liberty Unity. Um, mm -hmm. If I die tonight and David Fight dies and Dave Smith and Jeremy Todd and like everyone that you guys have, and I don't mean you, I'm talking to the camera now, Any anyone that you guys in the audience have attributed Liberty Unity to, it doesn't matter. The idea of Liberty Unity is exactly what Liam was just talking about. It's not a group of people. It's also not something we achieve and then reach a plateau. It's a constant battle. Like the idea of working together on the important issues, it's not something that's going to go away. It wasn't some hill we were going to get over and then we were all going to be fine. You know, this is a continuing battle. It's a concept. It's an idea. It's not a caucus. Don't relate it to me, you know, so, and Liam's right. There's been some bumps the last couple of weeks, but uh, it'll be fine. And just uh, remember what he said right there. Cause he's absolutely right. But uh, thanks for coming on Liam. I hope a lot of people check you out. I hope you're very successful and I hope to meet you in person sometime soon. Yeah. You'll have to come to Montana. Absolutely. There's uh, never a reason not to do that. <laughs> All right. Thank you, man.